Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guests today are Jeremiah Scott and Ryan Clark from the legendary metal band Demon Hunter. They just released their 11th album, Exile, and it's actually their first completely independent release. I thought this would be a really cool episode because I actually have known Ryan for a while. I had him on Creative Live in my songwriting class, and he's a very, very interesting person with some great musical insight and Jeremiah guitarist and songwriter in the band also produced and engineered the new album. So that would be cool to get the perspective of a self-produced artist. That's doing great. I know that many of you listening to the podcast are self-producing artists, so it's relatable. Let's get this going. So Ryan Clark and Jeremiah Scott, welcome to the URM podcast. Thanks, man. What's up? Glad to talk to you guys and glad to be catching up with you again, Ryan, because crazy, but it's been almost 10 years since the, <laughs> since that creative has. life we did. It's been 10 years since everything, right? I know. that's It It does kind of feel that way. But uh, man, that went by fast. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it, it's kind of nuts. So I checked out the new album. I love the way it sounds. Did you guys mix that or did Zeus mix it? I did, actually. Okay, that's what I thought. I just wanted to clarify. I love uh, how nasty it sounds. Is that good? Yeah, that's very good. (laughs) Nah. Since I started producing for the band 10 years ago, Zeus was always the mix engineer. And this time around, I mean, every record up until this one, I would record everything and produce everything knowing I'm going to hand it off. To a mix guy. I'm talking the sessions were clean, the wave files were perfect, all the edits were made, uh, the naming, you know, the first time I ever sent him anything, he responded back with immediately like, man, this is probably the cleanest session I've ever seen. Because I mean, I I kind of work in the industry, so I'm I know how I would want to receive the files. But you know, there's also like very minimal processing, no anything. Did you work on True Defiance? Were you in the band then? True Defiance, I joined in the middle of that being recorded. 
Did you do any of the engineering on that? Nope. That was all um, Aaron Sprink. Yeah. The reason I'm asking is because I was a uh, mix engineering for Sukoff back then. True Defiance was one of the first records that came in when I was working for him. And I remember how well prepped everything was. It was maybe the best prepped project that I ever worked on in my time there. Well, it was Aaron did the record, but who was his assistant at the time? It might have been Matt. It was Matt. From Emory? Yep. I, I don't know for sure. I don't want to take it away from Aaron, but uh, it could have been Matt that actually cleaned everything up and sent it over. Well, it's everything that Jeremiah was just saying, like the standard of quality of everything in that session, the way it arrived was just the way you wish everything was always delivered. And so that's what that, when you start talking about how you would hand stuff off, that's what that made me think of. That that kind of seems like how Demon Hunter rolls, basically. I mean, Aaron, I've worked with him a bunch since then. And I will say that still to this day, whenever I do get something from him, it's pristine. So if it was Matt doing all that file, you know, prep for mix before... Doesn't mean Aaron doesn't also do that. And I still appreciate sure, that. Yeah. And then I send the hymns the same kind of stuff. And then we're never complaining about the files. You know what I mean? Because we're we're pros and we're going to treat this the way it is. So he could just jump right into working on it. And so could I. Yeah, I, th- I think that is kind of like a, a calling card of ours, at least a little bit. Preparedness and professionalism are things that we like really want to lean into and, and want to be known for. I think a lot of bands, seemingly at least, they sort of wing a lot of aspects, yep. whether it's like in the artwork or it's the photo shoots or it's the videos or it's the showing up into the studio with half the songs written or half the lyrics written or just things like that. I hear about that kind of stuff all the time. And oh, it couldn't real. be further. It couldn't be further than the way that we operate as a band because we every little tiny aspect is thought about done, uh, prepared. We leave a little bit of room, you know, in the, in the final stages to, to be creative. We call it like a twinkle session. Like when we're, when the record is basically recorded the way it was on the demos and we basically reapproach everything and we go, okay, what could be added? What could be taken out? What could be simplified? What, you know, what should be, you know, could we tweak the, the structures first of all? And then beyond the structures, like, can we start adding little details and elements and things like that? So there is a little bit of that towards the end just to keep it fun and, and, and get the most out of the songs. But when we show up to record a record, it's so thoroughly fleshed out. And by that time, I mean, honestly, like all the song titles, the album title, the artwork's already underway. Probably the, the title for the next album is already decided it's we're just so intent on being really really prepared and really professional and like i think it just bleeds out into every every single thing that we do and there's enough of us in the band that are like really proactive and really care about that kind of stuff that i think it's a real driving force for what we do do you think that because you guys are in the industry and are pros that you're aware of what happens when You don't come prepared and all the BS that goes with that. So do you think that just having that kind of understanding of how most things operate in music, it pushes you to do it the way you would want to receive things? A hundred percent. Ryan and I are both very uh, discerning and very critical. And if somebody is not operating, you know, a hundred percent, 
you know, we might nudge them to operate at a hundred percent or I'll, 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 I'll push them aside and say, well, I'll just do it. That goes like, he's talking about all the aspects of the band, you know, even like, uh, you know, like our live production, I handle all that. And then I could divvy it out to a, you know, one of our techs or our front of house engineer, but if they're not really, you know, it's, this isn't their baby, but this is my baby. So I'm going to design the production. And even Ryan, I would say just, he can say more about this, but our deluxe editions for our records, if the label's kind of like, well, we, we don't know, you know, they don't seem like their heart's into it. Then he's like, well, my heart's into it. So he just makes it from top to bottom and creates everything about it. So, you know, a lot of pieces of this band from the record, from the songwriting, to the merchandise, to the live shows, and all that has our thumbprint on it, like more than I think most bands. Yeah, I think that, I mean, just the the normal operating procedure of entities, like business entities, bands, record labels, is sort of like wrought with a ton of red tape and a ton of bureaucracy and like way too many decisions, way too many people making decisions. We try, you know, just, just because of, you know, having the sheer experience that we have and collective experience that, that we have. You know, for me, I've, I've been in signed bands since 1996. So like 26, 27 years. So with that said, it's like, I've taken everything that I've seen in the industry and everything that's sort of annoying and doesn't really make sense to me. And yeah, like you said, I'm, I'm basically trying to, when now that we're fully independent and we're not beholden to anyone, like how would we do things? For instance, Jeremiah was talking about the deluxe edition. You know, if we're going to do this comic for this deluxe edition, when I hire these guys to illustrate or to letter or to color, we're not going to function like a normal record label and pay them at net 60 because that's stupid and everyone knows it's stupid and it's just bureaucratic nonsense. So instead I'm going to pay them the second that they ask for it. Like when they invoice us, we will PayPal them or whatever that day, right then and there. Isn't that nice? Isn't that how everyone would like to be paid for the work that they do? It just makes sense. <laughs> it's dude. It's funny. It's funny you say that because at URM, that's how we handle it too, you know, like people always get paid fast and it's always been that way because of my experiences as a producer waiting six months to get paid yeah. in some cases by a label, like a record comes out and I'm still waiting on the down payment, stuff like that. Like yeah. enough of that happened to where when URM started working with um, outside producers besides myself and the other founders, um, we've always pushed that we pay people immediately. And if there's a delay, that's the exception. In like seven or eight years, like there maybe there's been three or four times that something's gone delayed, but like it's totally the exception. And it's because it just doesn't make sense to me to make people wait that long. It just, why? Because it's, it's just a game of like moving money around and making sure there's a certain amount for this or that or taxes or investors and things like that. It's just become like sort of a, a game, especially with these large companies. But if you can, the beauty of having your own thing and doing it your own way and keeping it small and being scrappy is that you can do things like that. And despite not having a dedicated person to pay pay bills, which all these record labels do, 
despite not having that, you can just jump right in there and just take care of it. And this, this is just sort of an analogy for how everything goes for us. It's like mm-hmm. showing up in the studio and being 100% prepared, having all the lyrics, all the melodies, even harmonies, just everything sort of sussed out. That's being respectful to everyone else involved. That's being respectful to the the producer. It's respecting the process, but it's also respecting like everyone else involved. And that's like, you can make those sorts of decisions. You can do that sort of thing if you're dedicated to the thing. And if you, if the more passionate you are about the thing, I feel like these sorts of decisions are just going to come naturally. It's just like respecting the process and respecting. Like you know what's funny about respecting and wanting the best when it comes to at the end of the day preparation. I've thought about so this. Is uh, I think a lot of people have the attitude that well, if you're paying them, then they shouldn't get mad about you needing more time or being unprepared or stuff like that. But it's like, dude, money is one thing, but the human side of this uh, matters just as much, if not more. And no amount of money, uh, no amount of money makes up for the interpersonal side of it and uh, the basic human respect. And when you treat people like that um, and take into consideration uh, their time and also, you know, if you're thinking purely selfishly, uh, if you want to get the best out of people on your project, the less BS that you consume them with. And the more that you just allow them to get to work, the better the outcome's going to be. Right. And that's, I mean, if you think about the way that other businesses operate, like let's say you have a plumber come over and it's just a good experience, which is probably kind of rare. Um, you know, if it's just like they stay out of your hair when, when they should, they should, you know, they don't talk you to death. They don't keep you too long. Like all those sorts of things where it's just like sort of respecting your time. It's like taking those sorts of aspects of just like regular business interaction and integrating them into like something like, you know, this, like being in a band and sort of like all the different moving parts. It just, not only is it a a nice human thing to do, but for me, like this is, this is also a business for me and Jeremiah. And we're not so swimming in money that we can just like balk at the idea of return clientele. So if I treat people with, with respect and, you know, um, I'm professional about the way that I interact with people, I can, and I'm really good at what I do. I can sort of assume that that's going to be a return client for people that I guess don't need to worry about return clients or, or like, spreading a good name, you know, about your work and how good you are and how maybe how fast you are at being good and all those sorts of little aspects. I guess some people can sort of skirt those things because they, you know, yeah. they're financially stable. Well, uh, but for scary. those of us who work for a living, yes. it's just not, it's not possible to have a business model where you are, 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 you're thinking selfishly and you're not thinking professionally. And for me, it's just like, it's absolutely important. Man, I worked with somebody, I'm not going to say who, but I worked with somebody very closely who was, I would say at the top of the game at one point in time, production-wise. Definitely not saying who. And dude got kind of lazy and just started, you know, kind of just messing around with a client's time. And I remember I asked him, don't, don't people 
like, doesn't this like piss people off? Like, doesn't it cause problems? He said, I made it. I don't need to work that hard anymore. And uh, I was no, like, wow, no, no, I can't no. believe you just said that. And many years later, you know, he doesn't have even 10% of the amount of business. Yeah. Of course. Oh, I want to expand on what Ryan was saying about being prepared in the studio, because I think everybody needs to hear this. It's one of those questions that people ask us. It's like, oh, well, you know, how do I break into this and how do I do that? And I'll give like a little short list of some advice. And this is one of them. But um, when Ryan says he we come into the studio prepared fully, he's got all the lyrics and everything. It's not like it's all fleshed out and we're just going to do the work and then call it a day. I mean, we're that prepared so we can get to work immediately, yes. But we're not, you know, clocking time. Well, let's be creative and write a verse in the studio. But because we're so dialed in and ready, we can be creative when it, you know, it falls in your lap because sometimes it doesn't. A lot of this record is very different from the demo, even though the demos were majorly prepared. But I mean, Patrick does it too. And he comes in, that dude sits down, puts his guitar in his lap and is just like, let's go hit record. And he will nail these parts. Like he's been playing them for months and he, cause he has, and he's prepared like Ryan is. And Ryan goes in and he's not second guessing his lyrics cause he's, or even the harmonies, he's got it down. But we're knocking out songs, like three songs before noon. And then we're like, hey, what if we played with this guitar? Or let's, what if we tried this riff a little bit differently? Now, because we were so, you know, um, cowboy with how we're going to approach this thing, and we're ready to go, now we can, like, let those creative juices hit us and not feel guilty like we are wasting somebody's time in the studio because, man, I produced however many bands and one of my least favorite things is to see the singer sitting on the couch behind me trying to write lyrics and going, play that again, play that section again, play it. I'm like, dude, go home and you play it. You know, I'm like, go sit with your guitar player and and play it. You should have done that months ago or weeks ago or the guitar player trying to come up with solos. Even now, Patrick's my boy. And if Patrick's like, doesn't have something nailed for a solo right away because we just, you know, let's write a solo section right now on the spot. He's like, okay, he'll play with it for five minutes. And he goes, let's move on. And then that dude that night goes home on his own time and then shows back up the next day and nails it note for note. So um, That's that great. level of preparedness, you know, uh, it, it, it allows us to also do that, not just, you know, be respectful of the, everybody's time. That is very important. But if you're also trying to want to tap into more of the creative process, and make the most use of it. And again, like he said, we don't have all this money and to just do whatever. So we can't just rent out. I mean, I wish I was Metallica and I can just rent out a studio for a year and do a record, but we can't, you know, nope. Who, who does anymore? You know what I'm saying? Who has that anymore these days to just go into a major studio and just rent the whole block, the whole thing out for a, a year. You know what I mean? It would be amazing. Like, yeah, it's everyone's dream to like, yeah, let's go away for three months and write a record. That's a fantastic thought on paper. But on top of not having the money to do it, having the time 
just as either people that are, again, working for a living, you know, demon hunters had a nice amount of success in, in the industry. Like we're very lucky, but that's not my full-time job. It, it hasn't been the whole 20 years. When I'm working on demon hunter, I need for it to work smoothly and quickly to some degree. I can't like jeopardize the time that I have allotted for demon hunter. Cause on top of work, it's like, we all have families. We all have kids. We have so many irons in the fire. When we are going to sit down to do Demon Hunter, when I fly out to Nashville to track vocals or be there for drums or whatever, I can't squander that. I can't squander that time at all. And, and in order to not squander it, there's a certain amount of preparation, professionalism, and sort of being in the moment and being ready for it that is absolutely necessary, especially for a band like us who it's not our, any of our full-time things, yet we release albums probably more frequently than the average band. I mean, 11, that's nuts. You know, one thing I've always respected about you guys is that it's not your full-time thing. And I've always thought that it's really inspiring and that people should pay close attention to that because the idea of a band being your only income stream in the modern age that's also a fantastical thought. Like, I mean, it's doable, but it's super, super rare. And so to be a professional music person, and I say music person because there's so many different things you can do in music that go beyond just making music. In order to be a professional music person in the modern age, you're probably going to have to do a few different things. And if a band is one of them, you're probably going to have to work with limitations, limitations of time, limitations of budget. But I think that there's this myth out there that you have to only do your band and you can't have like real success out there, you know, real success in the industry beyond like a local level without doing it full time. And you guys are proof that you can do it part time and also do awesome things with it. If you want to be on the road, pretty much all year. If we wanted to do that, for instance, we could probably make a pretty good living doing it. Because when we do tour, it's, it's a nice little bump for all of us. Or at least in recent years, it has been. It's not always been the case. But we don't want to tour. Honestly, if, if I'm being totally honest, people with families, I think it's actually a really stupid way of life. <laughs> like, I mean, I think people above a certain age yeah, that's for sure. And and people that have a certain amount of responsibilities, those a combination of those two things, it's a lot of fun. And it can be there. I, there's a certain level of it where I feel like it begins to get really selfish at a certain point. And, and I think it's a, a lifestyle that people have just sort of become accustomed to and gotten used to. It's almost like having some, you know, a spouse in the military or something like that. But I, at the end of the day, I can't help but think like, do they have to do that? Like to the detriment of, of like their kids growing up without them and, you know, all that sort of stuff that happens. You see things fall apart, like very, like clockwork. Like when, when a band is, you know, on the road 300 days a year or whatever, it's just, it's never a good outcome with, with regards to what's happening like back at home. So for us, that's something that we, we just don't really want to do. You know, we still love touring and I think we love it and we enjoy it and we have a good time with each other because we don't do it so frequently. It's like you also hear about band members who just kind of don't like each other and just don't really have a good time touring anymore. And it's just become a job. And dude, for us, when we get up and play every night that we're on tour, it's like the 
best thing ever for all of us. Like we're, we're having the best time. And I, I know it's not like that for bands that tour a ton. No, definitely not. We're rare in that sense, like uh, work with a bunch of bands and tour with other bands and you see, oh, those two guys don't like those two guys in that band or that's the heel in that band. But yeah, we genuinely enjoy each other, love each other, do stuff outside of the band with each other just for fun. That's rare too, man. That's and that helps out a lot. Uh, if you guys don't mind, I wanted to. I never did finish my thought about when you asked about exile sounding. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Go for it. I think it's important to mention what happened there is we had Zeus mixing everything. Really, I don't want to throw, you know, Zeus under the bus at all. It would make, make it sound like I was because and why we decided for me to mix this. We still love Zeus. Still work with him. He mastered it, and dude, he's the butt. You know, like I said, I had all the sessions for all the previous records so tidy, and it was like, you know, a metal record. This is a metal record. Guitars, some synth, vocals doing this, drums doing this. You get it. Mix a metal record. But when we did Exile, things started getting hairy and uh, I would say experimental, and that was an intentional thing for me and Ryan and Patrick when we were coming up with the new sound, like, or should we make a new sound? You know, what should it be? And then we we can get into that if you want, but... It was something that was in our heads that we had many, many hours of discussion about that in order to see it come to full, you know, fruition with the mix guy, Zeus, let's say, it would have to be like hours of convincing him or explaining to him what we're going yeah. for. And I don't want, I didn't want to miss it. And so for the first time ever, I had a session with piles and piles of plugins doing this and and you know processing here and there where I've usually had it all stripped down now that might have also been because I just finished building my own studio and I had a new computer that can handle a heavier load finally and I've also started embracing more modern I, I was always kind of like a nope it's got to be this old school reverb and this compressor and I wouldn't look to new stuff because I was like kind of an old curmudgeon you know what I'm saying like it's got to be done this way. Then I started going, no, it doesn't have to be. can be done however you want it to be done. I started breaking rules that I put on myself. I guess us as audio engineers put on each other. I started breaking those rules a little bit and then started seeing that the sound can be changed. You know, who says there can't be three drum kits going at the exact same time? I've never, you know, well, that's just dumb. Maybe, but why not? And then so this is just a culmination of all these conversations, especially with Ryan and I have had about what makes this record crazy or what makes this one sound different. And then, oh, they broke the rule there. They broke the rules there. And so anyway, <laughs> I had a whole session, a whole record. And by the way, it's almost 80 minutes long. That's two records. So I didn't want to be like, hey, Zeus, you want to mix a record? And he's like, sure. And I go, by the way, it's two. <laughs> and it's not 12 metal songs. It's stuff all over the place. The kick drum and the snare is not at all the same on any of the songs and the guitar tones are different from each song to song. It's like, you know, whenever a mix engineer, whenever you get like, you get a record and then, okay, here's 12 songs of this band. And then you mix the first one, like the middle of the road song. And that becomes your starting point. Yep. Well, every song is going to have to be started over from scratch every single time. And I was like, dude, the workload that Zeus is going to have is four to five times a normal record. A. B, will he even understand what we're trying to do? And that's not 
if he doesn't, it's not his fault. It's because we just... Well, it's stuff we'd been talking about for months, you know? It, it would be downloading him. How would you just drop somebody into that? Dude, so what you're saying right here, I think, is a super common thing among bands that have very defined vision. And especially when you have people in the band who are capable engineers, producers, mixers, and have that passion for it, for the band itself that Ryan was talking about earlier... Like, I feel like this is a natural thing that happens. Like, bringing in an outside mixer, I think, is a very important thing to do. First of all, if no one in the band is capable, obviously, it's super important. But also, earlier in a band's career, it's really, really important, I think, to bring in somebody that can level the sound up. But, I mean, the more off the beaten path or the more defined a vision is the harder it becomes to just drop someone into it, like, I guess, after 80% of the work's done, like, and right. expect them to just understand where it's supposed to go. Now, I feel like sometimes that is what you want, right? Like, you do want someone who's going to have a totally impartial take on it and is going to kind of take it their way. But if that's not what you want, like, you have a vision. You've been working on this forever you know exactly what it's supposed to be. It can be a very frustrating situation to bring in a mixer and it's not a knock on the mixer. This happens with some of the best mixers in the world where it's just it's just the reality of coming into a project that is already so, I guess, yeah, defined. That would be the word. Yeah, and this goes against what we're always saying, which is like, man, record your stuff, but- Bring a mixer. Yeah, you know, and, and mastering, that- this is saying something different, though. So I do want to point out that I do realize the value of that. Hence, we've had Zeus mix everything. And then as soon as we sent it to him, first rounds were amazing. Maybe bump this one thing. But he was killing it. So do I think he wasn't going to kill this one? No, he was. This was a different thing. And I wasn't burnt out on the record because we spread it out over time. I would put it down for three or four weeks and then pick it back up. And then I was so in love with it and so involved that I wasn't burnt out. That's what everyone's saying. You don't want to get burnt out. So send it to somebody else. Fresh ears. Well, I kind of, I kind of kept coming at it with fresh ears all the time. So there's value in both. But for this instance, like it was probably going to be a little harder. And then, dude, seriously, the workload is going to be five times easily. I think there's two sort of like separate but equal aspects to this. It's, what you're saying, Jeremiah, you know, is its own thing, like the having to download all of this information to someone, you know, about conversations that we've had for months and hour long, you know, hours and hours of conversation, ideas and nuance and all that kind of stuff and trying to get someone on ingrained and on the same page. That's sort of like a what you don't want to have to do side, which is important. It's like we don't want to have to do this because, again, we're, we're trying to be as productive as possible. We're trying to use our time really well. But then there's the other side of that coin, which is what we do want to do. And for this record specifically, especially what we did want to do is as much of it as possible by ourselves with no outside help. So that's another massive aspect of like a point of pride and like a feather in our cap for this, this record specifically, which was can we release this on our own? Can we essentially start our own little record label? Can I source all of the product myself between me and, and our manager? 
Can I do all the art myself? Can I write the comic book myself, which is something I didn't plan on doing at first? Can we record it all ourselves? Can we do it in our own studios? Can we mix it ourselves? Like what part of this can we not do? And the things that we, we can't do or we, the things that we want done to a better degree than we could do, i.e., like the guy who, who illustrated the comic book. Like I, I know where my limitations are. I know my wheelhouse. I can illustrate, but not like this dude. So at a certain point, you have to do what's right and best for the project. But coming from that 90s hardcore ethos or punk ethos, which we're all coming from, the pride that comes with doing as much of the thing as possible by yourself, doing it DIY, figuring things out, being scrappy, you know, saving money, cutting corners that are good corners to cut, but not cutting corners that are necessary to keep, like all that sort of stuff and being like thinking on your toes and just being like your own, your own manager and your own like dictating your own time and like the people you want to work with and the people you don't want to work with and like when you want to schedule the music video and like who you, all that sort of stuff that like, like again, these, these entities sort of kind of get in the way of just being like effective and scrappy how much of this can we do on our own? And I think mixing it ourselves was also just another aspect of like, can we do it? Can we do it well? Would it be cool to do? Would it be fun? Would it be like an extra feather in our cap? Then let's do it. And so everything was that way. I mean, every project you work on, record, record you write, there's always those that little list at the end where you're like, ah, oh, I would have done that differently. You know, when you're listening back to it a year later, two months later, Five years later, this record might be because we kept it all in-house, did it all ourselves, and we nitpicked so much that, I mean, there might be two of the smallest, stupidest little things that I would change. But other than that, man, I mean, how often do you get to say that? You know what I'm saying? Like you work on a record and then you're like, wouldn't change anything about it. That's exactly how it's supposed to be. That's how it was in our heads. That's it. I mean, that's never happens, but... So that was one of the benefits of this is like, you know, Ryan would even call me up if one little thing was bothering him, you know, he had the freedom to tell me and then I'd be like, absolutely, sure. And then we would just, we just kept doing that. I mean, our little list of things to fix or change was massive and it just kept growing and growing and then shrinking and then shrinking and we whittled it all the way down to nothing. And I think that attention to detail comes out in this record. Yeah. So that, that again, like you can, you can throw all of this stuff on either one side of that coin or the other side of the coin, which is like that huge list that you're talking about. What you do want and what you don't want. Yeah. Again, when you hand something over to a mixer, even if it's someone that's like really going to kill it, there's always like a handful of things that you want to change along the way. And at a certain point, like if you're not exactly hearing it the way that you want to, you sort of go, okay, I guess it's fine. And that happens like every single record, no matter what, that'll happen a couple times. Unless you're a total ball buster, we don't want to operate that way. I know that people do. It sucks. It sucks. Yeah, yeah. I know that there are guys in bands that'll just punish, you know, mastering engineers or mixers or whatever, and they'll just keep them on call for weeks and months about the tiniest little nuances of songs, but I don't and can't operate that way. So at a certain point, I'll be like, that's fine. And this allowed us to not ever have to be like, ah, oh, it's fine. It was every every tiny little thing. I was like, can you bump that up just like 
<laughs> you know, like just the tiniest. Can we tell them about the second or third record? Can you tell this story? Because this is one of those, I've, I mean, I know production guys and bands like to hear this kind of stuff. This is how like Ryan will just roll over for some things. There's several, there's several stories like that. <laughs> Dude, but tell the one, tell the one about the lyrics ending. Like I think Sprinkle, you think Sprinkle accidentally flew the a section over. Just explain that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. So there's several, there's several of these. <laughs> trying to remember what song it is. Um, uh, it's on Summer of Darkness. I think well, the way Coffin I remember Boulder it is like, like if you read the lyrics, there's like a, a phrase. There's sort of a the call and response thing. It's like a scream and then a sing and then a scream and then a sing. But and the song was, ends in the middle it of it could, or something? No, no, no. What happens is the scream and then sing and then scream and then sing is a complete thought. And then somehow the screaming sections got got paired together and then the singing sections got paired together and sort of separated and those phrases now don't really make sense. <laughs> and it was just sort of flown into place. And I was like, oh, that sounds all right. But now like the <laughs> lyrics don't make sense. And like, I didn't, I was just like, ah, it's not worth, it's not worth. Yeah. Cause you didn't want to the, bother the engineer. The to like, day or you don't want to be that guy. Yeah, I mean, another, another one is fading away has that stupid. Yep. 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 The five measure, three measure thing in the bridge. And it's, it's a legitimate mistake. It's on record forever as a legitimate mistake. If you listen to the bridge of that, it's got this breakdown thing. And at the end of that breakdown, it does five measures and then three measures instead of four and four. Kills and it makes me. it really complicated for a band like us who doesn't work with like off times, time signatures or like weird parts like that. We're, it's just not in everyone's bones. So when we go to like rehearse that, if anyone's rehearsing to the record, it's like, oh man, it's really that annoying. Part. Yeah. Cause you have to ignore <laughs> it, you know, or, or try and like work your way through it. Yeah. There's another one that I don't think I've ever actually told anyone. <laughs> I did uh, guest vocals on a song for impending doom. Um, it's the only, the only one I've done. So you could find it uh, pretty easily. It's one of those songs where they just, Every once in a while, a band will do like a song and they'll just sort of send me like the instrumental and they'll be like, can you write something to it? I recently did that also with Holy Name on uh, a new song that they're releasing soon. But usually it's like, here's the part, you know, can you either sort of adapt it and do do your own thing or whatever? There's a couple of instances where it's been like totally blank canvas. So write the lyrics, write the melodies, whatever. This Impending Doom song was that. It was like... I think entirely instrumental. And so I wrote the vocals to the song, just like you would normally just top line stuff. And I sent it back to the, whoever their engineer was at the time. I don't know where the disconnect was. It was probably my fault. Cause it's, you know, it's, I don't really know what I'm doing in terms of, of recording and, and engineering and stuff, but the song came out in like the, the whole entire take or the whole entire finished vocal is like a half a measure off. And it does line up and it sounds cool in its own way, but it is not how I recorded it. <laughs> and it's the whole song. So it's kind of, it'd be interesting for people to hear like the way that I actually intended it. So that happened to me with uh, Soul Embraced, Rocky Gray from, he was the drummer for Evanescence and he's the guitar player for Living Sacrifice. And Rocky does, he's an amazing musician. He does a bunch of percussion for us on our records. And we love that guy. And he's, dude, he's sick, very talented, but I wouldn't say he's an engineer first. Okay. And you I mean, you know what I'm talking about when I say that, but like he can engineer, but he's not an engineer first. But, uh, so he had soul embrace and he goes, he sent me over a section 
to do a guitar solo on. And I listened to it and I did the solo, but I kept trying to ask, like, are you sure it's, you know, what's the beat marker where at, you know? And then it was just, the session wasn't clean and labeled properly. And I did a solo. I wrote it over this really weird dissonant part. Oh man. And he flew it to a very melodic part that I would have loved to write a solo over. And then I didn't even hear it until the record came out. And I was so bummed. And he goes, oh, it sounds cool. I'm like, no, it doesn't. That's not what I was trying to do, man. I feel like, I feel like what Samuel Jackson trying to act on a Star Wars movie, but just staring at a green screen. And you tell me that there's a lake there, but instead it's a mountain. I don't know. That's... <laughs> I just had an experience with with that. Um, I know what you're talking about too with that stuff is there's at some point where you just don't, you know, you just don't want to be an asshole and it doesn't feel worth it to just keep bringing it up. So my band just got our new stuff mixed by Jens Bogren, who is great, amazing, love him. And the way that I structure guitar parts is that... Lots of times I quad everything or do eight rhythms and often the quads will not be playing the same thing. It's not not like four independent guitar parts, but like an octave of it or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It'll be it'll make uh-huh. a bigger chord, uh-huh. yeah, for instance. Yeah. Like a four part like a four part chord. And it's wait, to be clear, you're not doing the same exact thing four times per side. You're you're slightly uh, like same same rhythmic pattern, but yeah, but it'll be like four independent, like four different inversions of the same chord or something. There's only one way it can go because if you start panning things the wrong way, it's going to start to sound like garbage. It's designed to be panned exactly the way it's designed to be panned. And something happened with this one of the songs where Jens, I don't know if we sent it to him wrong or he made a mistake. It doesn't really matter. But point is, I was sitting in the control room and like something sounded mono in the song. Like it's just like the guitar sounded mono, but it, I knew they weren't mono. I couldn't tell what was going on. I couldn't hear the the spread right. And I was, I just said like, man, something's weird. Like are the guitars monoed or what's going on? But he's such a great mixer and I have so much respect for him that I like... I didn't want to say it. Like I felt really like I felt really bad saying it and I didn't want to rock the boat because it still sounded kind of cool, but it was just wrong. The thing is, his guitar tone was not just four parts. It's like every part was a blend of three amps. So not only was it like very specifically constructed on my end, the mix itself, the guitar tone in the mix is very specifically constructed on his end too. And it's not the same thing on both sides. So like just redoing it is not, it's not that simple. You can't just like flip the pan and then it's fixed. It required him to basically go from scratch. And so once we realized what was going on was just, he had two of the guitars flipped panning wise. That's all it was. And he offered, he was like, you know what? Give me 30 minutes. I'm going to reamp from scratch don't worry about it. And I was like, thank God he said that. But it killed you a little bit to have to bring it up to him, right? Yeah, man. I like, I felt like, I felt so bad having to say it. And the thing is, like, he's a total perfectionist. Yeah, of course. He's the one that was cool to just go fix it. But yeah, a little piece of my soul died having to 
say something was wrong. Yeah, imagine having a record where there's 20 weird little things that need to be just like this per song. That was the exile. That's why I was like, dude, I'm going to have to try to mix this. And even if it takes me months to get where we want it to be, it's still probably going to be way easier. And then Zeus is not going to hate us because it was going to be me messaging Zeus over and over again. And eventually we're just going to get worn out and we're just going to roll over on the fact that this isn't panned right or the, the effect isn't correct on that vocal. That just goes back to, again, why I was like, I'm going to mix it. And then we mixed one in the middle of the road. One uh, a song called Chemicals. I think it was, Ryan, was that the first one I did? Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, in earnest it was. I did it. And um, Ryan knows he could be honest with me. He's not brutally honest. Like you won't be brutal. Won't be mean. No, no. He's never mean. You know, but his criticism was, criticism was great. And I appreciate it. I'll say everything that I want to say. I just might say it a little bit like nicer than I should. <laughs> Yeah, and he doesn't have to, to me. Like He, he can get I'll meaner, like, but... <laughs> I feel like there's just something, uh, you know, you know. So we did chemicals, but I mean, I just, I probably, because I had done all this work in the tracking session and editing phase, I think I mixed it like in an hour and a half, two hours. Yeah, well, also, you we were pseudo mixing along the way. That's what I mean. And that's the first time I've ever really done that. Because I don't do that usually for a record because I want to send it to Zeus and be wowed at the end. But this time, because the way the mix was, was reliant for the the song. So I would be mixing along the way. So when I got down to do it, I didn't just erase everything. I kind of went, okay, let's put things in their place. And then sent over something like an hour and a half later. And Ryan's response was like, man, if that's it, if that's what's on the record, I'm happy. And then that was very, you know, a big relief for me. And then not every song went that way. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, what's wrong with this one? Still, that's super validating though. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, great. I got the confidence to do it. And then let's, let's just go for it. And then start knocking them out. And then, yeah, we can have, I think I have like six or seven revisions on a few of the songs. And some of those are mostly mine because going up and down with that hi-hat, you know what I'm saying? Or overhead, it's always something stupid like that where it's like half a DB, but you know, other than that, it's um we we did a lot of revisions because we can because we're not bothering Zeus, you know, or bothering yeah. Yens. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Hey, everybody! If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, 
as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low-end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Ryan, out of curiosity, because, you know, you have worked with so many great mixers and producers at this point. How did it get to the point where you trusted Jeremiah to take that over? And the reason I'm wondering... This is because oftentimes there is, you know, in modern bands, there's always one person who's the engineer guy or two, you know, it's a modern thing, but it's not that normal though for that person in the band to be like an all out professional producer engineer. Like they're usually just amateur. Sometimes bands will let that person do stuff just out of default, but they secretly don't want to. I know that that's not the case here. So what I'm wondering is how did it evolve to the point where you had the full trust in a band member to handle something as major as this? It wasn't an overnight thing, for sure. If you see sort of like the trajectory of how things started shaping up, starting with extremist that was very much like a blend of like okay Aaron Sprinkle is still a part of the of the equation he had moved from Seattle uh, Aaron had moved from Seattle to the Nashville area Jeremiah was at that point a, a newish band member um, at least that was his first going into an album you know that was his first time with us and it only made sense that like, I mean, we've got, so we've got Jeremiah, he's got a home studio. He does record bands. He does, you know, he does a great job of engineering. That answers a ton of questions for us in terms of like, when can we record? Where do we have to go to record? How much is it? You know, all this kind of stuff with him being sort of an, the, our in-house dude, it answered a ton of questions. And so that with extremist, it was like, okay, well, let's, let's do everything with Jeremiah and his studio. And then I still really want to work with Aaron because there's kind of like a like a mathematical thing that that I feel like at the at especially at that time having done the four records prior to that doing vocals with Aaron was sort of like I could I could make sure that I was hitting things or finding things that I would that weren't necessarily like second nature to me. Yeah, clean vocals. Yeah, yeah, specifically singing vocals. So when I went in, when I would go in with Aaron, I would be like, okay, here's the part. And then he would be like, sing, you know, here, we're doing harmonies, like sing this thing here or do this like mono note harmony thing here. Like interesting things that are not go-tos for me. Jeremiah will tell you, I have sort of harmonies that are, I don't know what it is, like maybe a, a fifth or whatever, but 
harmonies that are super go-to for me, and I'll do it almost second nature. Aaron had this way of being like, what about this? And it'd be some really interesting thing that really kind of broke me out of my shell. So I, I really enjoyed that aspect of working with Aaron. So Extremist was like, all right, let's, I'm going to go over to Aaron's studio when I'm in Nashville, when we're doing Extremist, I'm going to do uh, singing vocals and then go back to Jeremiah's house and we'll continue doing drums, guitars, screaming vocals, all that stuff. So that was how that album was. And then with Outlive, it was like similar, but now Jeremiah's recording all the singing vocals and we're just sending them to Aaron to sort of like polish up a little bit. We're sending him the final songs to kind of just add like a little bit of programming to or things like that. He would send over a harmony on a vocal part right, that he right. built, that he forced with like, you know, Melodyne, something like that. And then he goes, try singing it this way. So it's like he was producing the background harmony vocals from afar. So yeah, anyway, that was just a little interesting thing he would do. Totally. So again, we're, he's still involved, but it's we're sort of like slowly but surely like taking more on ourselves. So the record after that, uh, which would have been, let's see, where are we at? Outlive and then War and Peace, right? Yeah, Extremist Outlive, and then we're at War and Peace, which is the double. We released two records on the same day, but they're 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 it's two records. Yes, not a double record. It's two records. Yes. Okay. So that was the first time that Aaron wasn't a part of the equation at all. It's not because we were like, oh, we don't need to, you know, we don't need to work with you anymore. We're like, it's hard to say why, like he wasn't part of the equation at that time, other than like a lot of things had had changed with his schedule, what he was doing at the time. He went from, you know, producing records and, and working with bands to doing more songwriting stuff and a lot of that sort of thing. Well, you you answered it earlier. You said, now when I go into the studio, I have all the backgrounds already laid out. Yeah. That's it. I mean, because before you didn't do it. Yeah, that's where I was going next. So working, having worked with Aaron Sprinkle for six records, the amount of like, tools that he gave me like just little tricks whether it was like structural things for the songs or like little tricks to help you know even just like something as simple as like the tambourine and the chorus thing which if you're thinking if you're listening really intently you'll hear especially like on the more melodic songs it's almost every song has a tambourine happening in the chorus what it does is it just sort of brightens up the chorus and it makes it feel like a chorus. It like feels like boom, it's here. Sprinkles a pop guy, so it's a pop move, you know. It's a pop move, but it's also like I hear it happening more often these days than than I did when we were doing it back in the day. It almost seemed like, ooh, is it a little taboo, you know, to like throw a tambourine in there? Is it a little cheesy? You know, what it, but it always felt right, it felt really good, felt bright, really gave us like these choruses that felt like choruses and not just like metal band starts to sing, you know, which is a huge pet peeve for me because <laughs> most metal bands that's, that like, that are considerably heavy that start singing, it's like there's just a singing part. It doesn't sound... It's a major pet yeah, peeve. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a chorus. There's no hook. It's just like singing. So it helped give us that edge, you know, but that's just one example of like a hundred little things that were sort of like sprinkle isms that I just gathered over the years. So now when I write a song or when I demo a song, I'm integrating a ton of that stuff that he sort of showed me. So if you listen to the demos when, when I was, you know, with the first couple of records, everything was just like 
cookie cutter. Like the first verse would be the exact same as the second verse and everything would be flown and everything, you know, yada, yada, yada. Over the years, incorporating all these tricks, <clears throat> like second verse should have some sort of differentiation between the, the first and the second verse, just to, just to keep things interesting. So it's not, it doesn't seem like it's just like a carbon copy. Little aspects like that. Or when you come out of the bridge and you're going back into that final chorus, which structurally is something we do a lot, there's got to be some sort of like, let's drop it out for a second. And it, you can do that in different ways. It doesn't always have to be like music drops out and it's just vocal and acoustic or whatever. Like that's one way to do it, but there's a dozen different ways to do that. Th those are just examples of stuff that, anyway, long, <laughs> this is a long version of saying. <laughs> yes, yes, like how you eventually started I trusting know, and me. I'm getting there. I'm and getting you're there. like, well, I write I, songs like this. <laughs> I'm getting there. By the time we did War and Peace, it's like, okay, so now Aaron's out of the equation altogether. Jeremiah's doing everything. And now really the only the only additional thing we're doing at that point is mixing and mastering with someone else. So when it came time to do Exile, it's like, are we ready to take on the mixing aspect and do that in-house and have Jeremiah do that as well? It's not the first thing that Jeremiah has ever mixed. So there is some proof there. He had He's mixed things before. Um, I knew that he was capable. I knew that we'd be able to work on it sort of ad nauseum. Like we could, if, if it was like, if there was any sort of learning curve or like that for either of us, it was like, we could just sit there and work on it like crazy. But I knew that he was absolutely capable of doing it. He's as, just as capable as any other engineer that I've ever worked with. So I knew that that was there. And it was just a matter of like the, the time and experience that we've had together it's like, are we at that point now where we can we can bite this off and make this happen? And I, I knew that it was that it was possible. We both did, but it was just like let's let's go for it and see what happens. That makes perfect sense. So it, it just seems like the most natural thing in the world. And I think also the Aaron Sprinkle story, like I think that as far as bands go, you guys worked with him longer than most bands ever work with anybody. Like six albums is a lot. It was, he produced, and then two two records mixed by a person, and then two records, or, you know, the mixing engineer was always switching. Yeah, we would rotate mixers. And then when it got to me producing, we we hit Zeus, but when we did Extremist, that was our first record with me producing and Zeus mixing, it was like, man, we love the way this sounds. It was like, so we, we didn't want to get rid of that, so we kept with it for Outlive, so that's two. And then if we're going to stay, keep up with the cycle of just, okay, let's go find another mix guy then. So yeah, we did vary. Yeah, you're right. You know, we, we, the producer, we stayed with the producer for longer, but we were, you know, they were at back of the day varying it with the mixing guy. Part of that is because, so the way that the, the band was formed and like from the very beginning was, it was me and my brother were just kind of like, we should, we should, you know, do this. We had just moved from Seattle, Training for Utopia had broken up, and we were like, let's just start this new band. We didn't really have all the pieces together to like actually do this thing. So it was like, all right, I guess we could write the music. Aaron Sprinkle's brother, Jesse, could play drums. If and when we go on tour, we could like cobble together a live touring version of this band. And it was honestly, I worked at, at Tooth & Nail in Solid State at the time. It was like the band consisted of like coworkers. John Dunn, who's still our bass player to this day, worked in the mailroom 
he worked his way up to A&R and signed August Burns Red and Emery and all these other bands. But at that time, when we first toured, he was a mailroom guy. And Chris McCadden, who had played in Embodiment and Society's Finest and other bands, Famine, he was also a designer like me. And I ended up hiring him. He moved up from L.A., where he was living at the time. And I mean, again, it's just like we were cobbling together this band out of, you know, just grasping at whatever was there in front of us being scrappy, you know, making the most of your current situation. Yeah, exactly. So when we, when we hit the studio with Aaron, we didn't really know what we wanted to do or what we were doing. Like we knew that we wanted it to be like slick and and well-produced and we knew that it, we wanted hooks and we knew we wanted like certain aspect of melody, you know, like we were, we were leaning into like Machine Head, Fear Factory, Deftones, you know, the the sort of 90s Roadrunner stuff. But also we weren't super good players. We couldn't like riff like crazy or do solos. And Jesse, who was doing drums for us, couldn't do crazy double kick or like super fast stuff. So it's like take all those influences, throw them in a blender and then play them by people who are just trained in hardcore music you know, which is basically I stopped learning how to play guitar at like 15 years old. So that's what came out, which was ended up being sort of a very simple metal core influenced new metal kind of thing. But what Sprinkle added to it in those early days was something that was sort of new and refreshing, like adding the, all the programming aspects that he did, you know, just some of the like cool electronic things and and just treating the vocals the way like on more of a honestly sounds more like a pop vocal in a lot of the choruses than the way that a lot of metal singing vocals were treated back then and so there were certain things and this was honestly by virtue of he had never worked with a metal band at this point he had produced a lot of records recorded a lot of bands he had never done a metal record so he approached this the same way that he would have like an amberlin record or you know an MXPX record or whatever. So it's just naturally going to come out a lot different. You know, if, if we were to go to, you know, whoever, Terry Date, it's just going to, it's sort of going to sound like a guy who does a bunch of metal records. But because Aaron was approaching it from not only a guy who'd never done metal bands, but like honestly didn't really listen to metal music. And that ended up working in our favor because it ended up giving us these sort of like interesting, unique little aspects to play with that became a part of our sound this is a really long way of me saying like for the first few records, he was sort of the fifth Beatle. He was sort of like, yeah, that makes sort of like another aspect to the band artistically that was seemed like at the time that absolutely like an integral piece. And as we moved forward as a band, a lot of those aspects that he brought into the, into the fold became just sort of second nature for us. And I started writing that way. I started editing myself in ways that he would edit. Um, I started, you know, at, by, by the time we had six records down, it's like, okay, we know how the chorus vocals are supposed to sound. We know how the blank is supposed to sound because we are a brand. Now we have a, there's sort of like a standards guide for, for what we're doing. That's the reason why we stuck with him for so long. So his fingerprint is still on it. Yeah. And also Patrick and I started doing the, the keys and the synthesizers and all that kind of stuff too, which is what was his, you know, initial, input into the the record right so there's also that you know we we still keep doing that yeah and and honestly like jeremiah and patrick you know when they're when they're writing or when jeremiah's producing it's like there already is sort of 
a, a blueprint and it's not that they have to stick to exactly what that blueprint is, but it's like at that, by the time those guys were writing for the band or producing for the band, there was sort of like an established thing that we were doing. And it's like, we definitely want to evolve. And both of these guys have helped us evolve massively. Um, there are things that we do now with, with Jeremiah and with Patrick specifically that we could have never done 10, 12 years ago. And it's sort of really helped us stay fresh. And it's the reason why I feel like our fans are going like, man, how do these guys get better after 20 years? Like no one's getting better after 20 years. But it still sounds like you. That's what's cool about it. Like uh, from, cause I just listened to the new record before this start to finish. That's one of the things that really stuck out to me is uh, all the elements that if you think of Demon Hunter, you can kind of go down a list of what you would associate with that sound, like hooks, simple but catchy riffs. It's like this brand of heavy that it's hard to explain, but you know, when you hear it, it's like a certain amount of programming, like certain tempo-ish. Mm-hmm. Not not saying it's all the same, it's not, but like there's there's a, there's definitely like characteristics to Demon Hunter songs that... If you heard enough Demon Hunter, you can totally spot them the moment they come on. What I noticed about the new record was just how much, and I mean, obviously, but just how much it does sound like everything you would expect from Demon Hunter, but new and fresh, which is really, really cool because lots of times bands who have an established sound will get stale. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a real challenge to stay true to what you are stay totally recognizable, but somehow evolve it at the same time. That's actually way challenging. Well, when we first started to do this, I mean, there's also that, there's always that, I don't know, man, you're not sticking to the exact same formula. If you're, if you're going to be experimental, you know, fans might not like it, or there's plenty, I mean, of examples of where bands went a little crazy, a little wacky, and then nobody really, it wasn't received very well. It might've been received better later on. You know, but it wasn't what fans were expecting, so they kind of got grossed out, right? So we knew that going into this, and I don't even say—I don't even think we went full on as much as we could have either. We we definitely went in this direction. In the back of our minds, and again, we've all been—you know—Jeremiah is the quote-unquote newest member, and that's 2012, right? I've been the band uh, right? eleven years. Yeah, eleven years. So he's the the newest member in, but he's eleven years in. So not that new. Not that new and sort of like the brain trust of like writing. Thank you. You know, when me and him and Patrick are sort of like writing and going through demos, there's sort of a, there's an understanding and sort of like an unspoken, there's some unspoken rules or unspoken like understandings about the way that we write and the things that Demon Hunter does. Like when Patrick sends me a bunch of songs, I know that Patrick's capable of writing like modern rock songs. I know that he's also capable of writing like super technical metal. He knows that it needs to be in our wheelhouse. And so when he sends me like 30 demos, which he does every record, they're all Demon Hunter style songs. And a lot of them are way more technical than stuff I could play or I could demo, which is awesome. And so you hear that come through in a lot of his songs. If the riff is like riffy and is like sounds like it might be hard to play, that's a Patrick riff. That's definitely not a me riff. But that's awesome because that's helped us evolve. But when we're writing, we all know that like Demon Hunter is not like a Radiohead. We're not going to take like a hard left turn at any point. In the back of our minds, we're like, okay, can we tick the boxes of 
what would make us stoked? Like, you know, a continued stoke. Like every record, we're stoked to get into it. We're stoked with the outcome. We don't feel like we're treading water. Is that one thing that we can tick? At the same time, can we tick like the box of, will fans be stoked by this? Will they be thrown for a loop? Will we be alienating anybody? Like what Jamie Josta once said, like when you go to McDonald's, you don't want Taco Bell, you want McDonald's. Like you want what you're used to when you go to McDonald's. So that's probably more true for hate breed than it is for us. But there's a certain aspect of that that I do think is important. Like when you give someone a new demon hunter, do you want to give them kid A and have everyone scratching their heads? Which like (laughs) it can work for a band especially like a band that like at a certain point is sort of known for making those hard left turns. Like David Bowie was like that. Every, every record was something totally different that that becomes a thing and it becomes something that people come to expect and be excited about. But for us, there's a certain aspect or a backbone or a blueprint of it should sort of sound like this. Now, the good thing for us is since record number one, we've given ourselves a pretty big playground because we have these ballad esque songs We have these mid-tempo songs. We have songs that are entirely singing. We have barn burners that are entirely screaming and they're like punk beats. So we have that those two, you know, sides of of the coin and then everything in between that we get to play with. A lot of bands don't give themselves that that opportunity or those sort of rights right out of the gate. Like uh, no pun intended, but at the gates, it's like when at the gates does a record, it's going to sort of primarily sound, the songs are going to basically be the same with the exception of like one or two, like acoustic instrumental tracks. Right. That's not. And that's what you exactly, want. Exactly. That's the too. McDonald's that, right. That's yeah. the, that's the two cheeseburger meal that you want when you get at the gates. Yeah. You know, honestly, if at the gates put out something that wasn't a style, I'd be like, what? Yeah. If Lindbergh started singing, you know, like trying to do hooks, like we would all be put off by it as we should. But it's like Demon Hunter was, we were already giving ourselves this really big playground to play in. So that not only keeps things interesting for us, it's just like easier for us to evolve over the years because we have this massive, this massive area to play in that is still at the end of the day, like innately Demon Hunter to do. So it's not gonna, we can do a record that is like maybe more melodic than the last one, but it's still gonna sound Demon Hunter. Or we can do a record that's more, maybe primarily a heavy record. Like True Defiance was almost, you know, one of those records where it was like, oh, this is actually a lot of heavy stuff. And Outlive was as well. We can do that and it's not gonna throw anyone for a loop. It's just like, oh, this is a heavier Demon Hunter record than the last one. The thing about it though that I really respect is the ability to respect your own brand while also keeping it artistically honest. There's this weird misconception out there or like this weird idea I feel like sometimes where if you use the word brand with a band or you talk about having not rules but like boundaries or something, sometimes people will think that that means that you're going to come up with something contrived. I think just the opposite, really. I think that limitations breed creativity. I do think, though, that sometimes um, people will get the wrong idea about that, where I really, really respect it when bands know exactly how to stay true to who they are, yet you hear their music and it's just as honest as it ever was. I think the problem with like using the word brand for a band is like a band should be like at the end of the day, like in its truest and purest form, it should be like highly artistic. Right. And when you say a brand, it sort of sounds corporate when bands or band guys or musicians or when people like us hear those kinds of words, we're sort of put off by the corporateness 
of those words, but it really does a better job of explaining like a whole bunch of things that would be hard to sort of put into words. What else would you call it? Right. And, you know, whether or not Seeger Rose would call what they do like a brand, it is a brand. You create a brand by virtue of the sort of look and feel and the aesthetic and the overarching themes and all those sorts of things are, are just sort of like feeding back into what you could call quote unquote a brand, whether you like it or not. Like Radiohead can sit there and pose for f- photos and be, and look like they're put out the whole time. Like, oh, they don't want to be here in these photos. But at the end of the day, that actually becomes part of their brand. Like they, they look like dudes who don't want to be there. Oasis was the same thing. It looks like guys who can't be bothered. But that becomes part of your brand. Even if you're trying to like work against the brand, it sort of becomes your brand at a certain point. It's just like Mastodon sort of has like a humorous edge. You know, whether or not they're just trying to like make light of things or, or take things less seriously than the average metal band, at the end of the day, it becomes part of your brand, whether you want it to or not. It's just like, are you willing to use that word, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I think you should just call it what it is. I mean, that is what it is. Yeah, and for me, who you know, I work in, in design and, and it's just part of the vernacular. Like, it's what I do with most of my time. So it's like, it just makes more sense for me to see it that way. Yeah, totally. Jeremiah, question for you. You said in the pre-interview, actually, that an old band of yours, like junior high or something, you went to record at a local studio for about $500 a day. Yeah, yeah. And uh, engineer seemed kind of disinterested in doing what you guys wanted sonically. That was kind of your jump off point in engineering. What I thought was interesting about that is that I feel like most people in heavy music that are 50 and under, that's how they started, is they went to a studio, some local studio that was overpriced and some engineer didn't get it or didn't want to get it. Didn't get it is the big point there. Yeah. And that led to like almost every awesome producer in heavy music started that way. So I, uh, when I read that from the pre-interview, I was like, yep, I know that story. Well, it keeps going today. So it's, if I think it should be this way and I hear it this way in my head and then you know, you go to a professional or somebody to do something, you know, and then they don't do it that way. And then I push them aside and go, I'll just do it myself. And then (laughs) that's why here we are later on doing everything about the record, even having the label ourselves. So like, we'll just do it. We'll just do it. But it all goes back to the, even when I was, like I said, I was like, what, 15, 14 or something, but somewhere in Southeast Texas. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think uh, it was like, well, how'd you get into it? I, I mean, I loved guitar and playing in bands. I was loving every single new little thing about it. When it was like, oh, I'm in, I play guitar. Oh, I'm in a band. I love this too. Oh, wow. Being, doing long road trips to some stupid gig that no one's going to show up to. I love this too. I love the road trip part. Okay. And then recording. Oh, wow. I love this. Oh, wait a minute. This isn't going well. And I just remember seeing the guy and I wasn't overwhelmed with the console. I mean, I, I recognize really quick that it's just lines of the knobs and it's the same thing, you know, from left to right. It's like, you know, one little strip, you know, all of them. And I'm watching his fingers and it was like, we wanted a no effects kick drum sound, right? We played it for him and he just kind of rolled his eyes and brushed us off. And it was like, he was just getting this, I don't know, like a blues rock kick drum sound. And I was like, no, dude, uh, 
EQ it better. Do something. You're the engineer. And then he was like, no, this sounds good. And it, it was, he was like kind of fighting us on it. So that moment, I was like, dude, if I'm watching him play with those knobs, I know what to do now. If he, I, if we can knock this dude over the head and just drag him outside, I will touch those knobs and I'll make that kick drum sound better than he does. And so it was like, kind of like, I think I could do this. Yeah, I'm going to learn how to do this. We're never going to come back to this guy ever again. I'll learn something. It took years to get anywhere, but that gave me the, oh, I do like the, you know, engineering part of it. And then also I also learned, man, you got to listen to your artist. You can't just like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. You got to listen to them. It's funny you say that because I have noticed something with older school engineers. And I think in the older music industry and also with more on the local level, it's way more popular to disregard what your what the artists say just because they might not be engineers themselves. So say you get mixed notes and they're not technical or they're using the wrong terminology or <laughs> you know, they're communicating in a weird way. It's like a lot of people think it's cool to like blow them off as stupid or not knowing what they're talking about, which I think is that is stupid. Because just because they don't know how to say it doesn't mean that their opinion is not valid. That's old school studio engineers, right? Yeah. Multiply that by 50 for the average modern day live engineer. And you know what I'm talking about. Like, I I bet (laughs) you, how many times do you go to one of your gigs for your band and you talk to the modern engineer and he's like, ah, shut up guy. I know what I'm doing. You know what I'm saying? That happens to me all the time with a house engineer. And it's like, he doesn't know that I know the studio. He also doesn't know that, I mean, do I've toured as a touring front of house engineer in arena tours and, you know, did warp tour, which is one of the darkest times of my life. That was just awful, just hot all day long. But, you know, I've, I've, I've done that too. So whenever I step foot on stage as a guitar player, Ryan is always trying to get me to just be, just be a guitar player now. Just cause you, you need to think that way. But I also appreciate that there'll be a million times on tour. I'm like, Jeremiah, can you please just take, (laughs) can you go in there and take care of it, please? (laughs) Well, yeah, there's times I walk up. I'm like, I'll be talking to the, let's say it's a fly gig. We don't have our monitor engineer with us or whatever. And it's like, hey man, the kick drum sounds kind of weird. Can you just pull out some 400 hertz, please? Like a lot of it. And then he's like, yeah, whatever. And then you, you you know, you'll use the terminology a little bit. Like I'll say 400 hertz. He's like, oh, what? This guy might know what he's talking about. I don't know. And then there's a lot of times I just walk up to the engineer and just tap him on the shoulder. Excuse me. And I got my guitar around my neck, like wearing the wireless thing. And I just push the dude over and whatever console it is, I'm sure I've spent hours on it before. And then I just start flying all around it and just fixing everyone's ears or monitor mixes. And then those dudes never assume that you know what you're doing. What's awesome about that too is it just, again, it's another piece of the puzzle that allows us to be scrappy. Is like just the fact that you've done live you know, you were our front of house before you were a guitar player and you, you'd continued doing it and you did it before. And so that is another massive thing. Like you're saying, if it, we've got a fly out date or if they're, you know, it looks like the, the in-house person isn't quite up to, up, up to snuff or if we don't have a crew with us for whatever reason or whatever, like just having that, again, having that in-house like as a band member, not just like someone that's like part of our team, but as a band member is like, it allows us to be super scrappy. Yeah. It's good for the band to have that dude, me there 
but it sucks for me because I have to go up and somehow prove <laughs> I have to pass through the test and be vetted by whatever front house guy is at this club. He has, oh, of course, you know, of it's course. like, I'm not going to go and go, Hey man, guess what? I've toured and done this and done that. And like, he doesn't care. You know, I wouldn't if I was there, you know, but somehow like, Oh, you have to kind of talk to him, get on their level and then get their confidence. And then I mean, that's hard, man. That's every single time that has to happen. It's not like I can, any guitar player can just walk up to the front of the house engineer and just say, Hey man, <laughs> mix us like this, you know, won't go over well. I get a little bit of that. I don't get a, I don't get a, you know, as often as you have to deal with it, but I do get it in my world. I'm actually talking with a band manager right now about doing artwork and I feel like he, he's never really bothered looking me up. Like the band told him that they wanted to use me, but every time I tell him something, he's like surprised. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I can send I can send you a book that I'd put out last year of all the album artwork I did, or here's this website, you know, like, he keeps asking me things as if, as if I, you know, so do you do like the whole package? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. The, I do the whole package. I, I've done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them. Uh, you know, just really weird questions. Like he's just hasn't done his research. So every once in a while, I also have to be like, I've done this, man. <laughs> I've done this before. Not in the exact same way as, as working with an in-house engineer, but I, I get the, I get the frustration. I feel like uh, lots of times in music and I have one theory. I think some people are bitter and burned out and so are not interested in not not interested in finding anything out about anybody. But some people have they've encountered so many people that are not good or who are just full of shit or whatever, just not not on the level that that's kind of their their baseline assumption when working with a new person is they they're not giving the benefit of the doubt they need to be they're they're just coming in with the assumption that this person doesn't know what they're doing and um they need to be convinced otherwise as opposed to coming in and giving somebody the benefit of the doubt and then being convinced that the person doesn't know what they're doing they already are basically convinced that the person doesn't know what they're doing and uh it's on you to show them otherwise, right. which is kind of annoying. But uh, I do think that it that part of it is part of it is kind of understandable just because there's so many jokers in music. Yeah. After you've dealt with fifty of them in a row, like fifty artists that like or engineers or something that just like ditch. So that yeah, that's why I hit the middle. You know, you, you just said like don't just blow the person off right away. I would never do that. I treat everyone professionally. Until they prove to me that they're a joker. Then I'm like, okay, fine. And then I push them out of the yeah, way. Totally. Yeah, totally. But, dude, I definitely treat every single person like like they're 10 levels above me, and I, I trust them. And then once I start he- seeing what they're doing or hearing what they're talking about, I'm like, wait, he doesn't get it. Okay, I have to do it now. You know, so, yeah, I guess hit the middle, I guess, you know. It's partly just life, though. I mean, that's sort of how a lot of things, when you started saying that, my mind went immediately to like doctors. Like when you go in and th- you know, something's wrong with you, they're immediately just going to go like, okay, so this is probably your average person. I probably just need to give them a prescription and just assume that like, that's, that's the way that they're going to want to approach this. Like they're probably not going to want to eat better. They're probably not going to want to exercise. They're probably not going to, you know, you just have to assume the, or a lot of, a, a lot of doctors assume that it's just like, you're the general public. 
who wants to do the bare minimum. And they're right 90% of the time. And they, exactly, exactly. And that's, that's what the, the biggest bummer is that like you walk in there and you're like, no, I want to do the work and I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. And you still get that same thing because yeah, you're, you're one out of a thousand people that actually will do the work, actually will change your lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. But that's, yeah, unfortunately that's how it goes in a lot of industries. It's annoying to have to be on the receiving end of it. I used to get really mad about it. What has helped me chill out about it? Like for instance, at the in the early years of URM, man, talking to managers or anyone was rough, was rough stuff because they didn't know me. They didn't know my background. They didn't know about the creative live stuff that I did first and any of that. And so here is just some some dude at some internet mm-hmm. company asking to license the tracks from the, some major artists they represent. It's like, why would they be cool with that if they never, if they don't know anything right. about you? Like they're instantly going to be, they're going to just default towards no, like I don't even know you. And once I like, I tried to put myself in their shoes. It's like, well, how many people that are full of it approach they're artists, probably a lot. They're probably fending stuff off all the time, and rightly so, because they their whole job is to protect right. their artists. And so they're just doing their job. It's on me to establish myself to the point where they heard of me before we have the conversation, or what, if they haven't heard of me, to just do as good of a job as possible addressing their concerns. Now it's barely a problem. Now it it like really doesn't happen anymore. But the first few years of doing URM, I encountered that literally every single time I tried to do anything. It took like a good three, four years before you started to chill out. And it definitely pissed me off so much at first. But yeah, after a while, I just, I really, really did the, the mental work of trying to understand why it's like that. And that helped me chill about it. Now, when I encounter it, I don't, I don't really react to it. I just help them see that it's going to go, okay, we know what we're doing. Yeah. It's a difficult spot to be in. I worked for an ad agency for a number of years, just a few years back. And it was probably, you know, I'd been working as a professional designer to whatever extent for probably about 15 years by the time I ended up working with them. It was a, it was a crazy time for me because I've been just so insanely lucky with my clientele and like return clients and just portfolio and so just so many lucky breaks and and just like a lot of experience along the way and I ended up at this agency and I would go to these meetings at Amazon, Starbucks, you know, wherever, all these big companies and I had no clout at all. Like no one knew that I knew anything about anything. I was I I was I could have been like the guy who started designing straight out of college like last week to all these people. And it was like the biggest blow to my ego. <laughs> it was probably, <laughs> it was probably a very necessary thing for me at the time. Some good perspective. Yeah, it was good perspective. It was really difficult though. Like it was because I had been so spoiled and because most of my clients are people that just come to me because they've seen my work, because they want a specific thing, because I did this or did that. That's almost the entirety of the reason why people come to me is because of something I've done or because, you know, they've been following my work or whatever. And then to go from that to being like in a room with people who have no idea what you've done or if you have any experience at all and 
they don't need to trust you or have any reason to trust you or, or think of you as an authority on something. And you're so basically starting from scratch. It's like, like I said, it was probably necessary, but uh, it was really difficult. Well, how did you overcome it? I quit. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> Good. <laughs> there you go. That's hilarious, actually. I'm very thankful for the time that I was there. I was I had a new baby at the time, and I sort of saw it as like I should probably have like a, you know, a, a very stable thing because at the time I was just working freelance, and my wife had just quit her job, so I was like. I should probably find something that's really stable. And that's the reason I did it. And uh, I love everyone there, but it was honestly like creatively like the darkest time of my professional career. Like I, I don't really have anything from those two and a half years that I would really care to show anyone. Not, I just didn't feel creative at all. I, I learned being there that in order for me to do good work, my name has to be on the line and my is as lame as this sounds, I, I think people will understand, but the reward for my work has to sort of be equal to how much I decide to put into something. So if yep. I get the exact same paycheck every single two weeks for doing whatever version of whatever job I'm going to do, A, B, C, D, F, if I get the same paycheck no matter what, I find it's really hard for me to care more if though my clientele is based on how good I do and the money I get is also based on how good I do or how fast I do it, it's a completely different ballgame. If I can get an album package done in three days, that to me is like, that's money in the bank versus an album package that would take me f four weeks to do. And the reason I can do stuff like that is not because I'm phoning it in, but it's because I'm, I just know how to do things faster these days. I've done it so many times. At an agency, that goes against how agencies work because most of them, they function on the churn, like they're billing hourly. So when you're billing hourly, you have to take as much time as possible. You have to iterate as many times as possible. You have to revise as many times as possible because you're billing for all that. But when you bill per project, it's in your best interest to be fast and scrappy. And so I've always been fast and scrappy. From working at Tooth & Nail, it was like we would sometimes do eight releases a month. And I would have to do not just the album package, but like all the promotional assets and stuff. So I learned to be crazy fast. But that started, if you're fast like that, that works to your disadvantage at a place that bills hourly. So I found out really quick, like there's no way that I can do great work here because it just goes against every, everything that like the way that I, that, that I operate. Well, you know, I think that that's great. Everyone should hope to know themselves that well, that they know exactly what type of environment they thrive in. I think that most people go through life not knowing that about themselves and severely limit what they get out of life. I think knowing exactly what it takes for you to thrive is a, it's a great thing to know. It was just by virtue of a lot of luck and a lot of great relationships. I mean, I didn't deserve the job. When I, when I became a designer, I didn't deserve it whatsoever. I just had a relationship with Tooth & Nail and with Brandon and with the people that worked there. And I knew nothing about design. I, you know, I did art, but I, I drew in sketchbooks and stuff. So when I was given that break, it was by virtue of relationships and just right place, right time. But I, I get it, like not everyone sort of has those opportunities. And so it makes sense that a lot of people wouldn't... At, you know, wouldn't be able to suss that out for themselves. Like what, in, in what sort of environment do they thrive? Because I was given a really fortunate hand 
enabled, you know, being able to find out what, what did work for me and what was sort of my best case scenario. Most people don't get an experience what that best case scenario is for them in terms of their like occupation, you know? Yeah. Though I do think regardless of your circumstance, if you want to, especially if you have your ambition set on a creative field, you should probably force the issue and try to figure that out. Yes. You got to know that about yourself or else you're basically just subject to, to total circumstance. And if you are, have fortunate circumstance, great, but if not, not great. Yeah. There are a lot of ways that you can sort of like, you know, I don't want to say like make your own luck. Cause I think that's sort of hogwash uh, or it, it greatly depends on your surroundings and things like that. But there are things that you can do to sort of make a, the outcome be a little bit more of what you want. Yeah. Push the momentum towards you. I want to thank both of you for taking the time to hang out. It's been awesome talking to both of you, Ryan. It's been awesome catching up with you after so long. And I'd love to have you guys back on. And uh, I love all your music. So that even if I didn't already know you, it would be sick to have you on. Awesome. Thanks. Likewise, man. Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah. Anytime. It was a pleasure. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALLEVYURM Audio at URM Academy. And of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.